We know we're as divided as ever as a country. We know President Biden has a low approval rating and that people are tired of COVID, of inflation. So what does it all mean for this question? What is the story of the 2022 midterm election? My colleague Mariana Sotomayor covers Congress for The Post, and she says the story of this year is still coming into view. Every single election, especially midterms, has one. You saw in 2010 the Tea Party movement going against then-President Barack Obama, and a lot of voters focused on the economy. Some election nights are more fun than others. Some are exhilarating. Uh, Some are humbling. In 2018, you had suburban women who were turned off by Trump turning out in droves and electing a blue wave into Congress. For a former real estate man, this is not the house he wanted, but President Trump will have to deal with it. And now the question is, what are the levels of power that are going to change? And there's a number of issues affecting it. Immigration, high prices, inflation, and now abortion. And it really depends on the week and what is happening in real time that at the end of the day is going to inform voters on who to vote for in November. And I think about the things that are on voters' minds right now. You know, obviously we have the the prospect that Roe v. Wade seems likely to be overturned by the Supreme Court. We have yet another mass shooting that happened over this past weekend, this one racially motivated. Um, so thinking about those issues, I mean, how is that playing a role in, in the midterms as we're starting to see this season really pick up with primaries happening over the next few weeks? I think the lesson from those examples are, Anything can happen at any time, right? So it's hard to predict when a shooting, a racially motivated shooting is going to happen and how that's going to affect voters. Maybe someone who is not going to turn out is thinking, oh, my gosh, that could have been me. That could have been my family. I need to go vote for whoever. Um, Abortion has been one of those issues that, you know, a lot of Democratic and Republican strategists knew there would be a decision very close to November. But We still don't know the outcome, even though we've seen that draft. And we've already seen Democratic voters way more enthusiastic than the last several months because they have an issue to to turn out for. If Republicans take the House and Senate in November, President Biden would become the fifth consecutive president to see his party lose both chambers of Congress on his watch. As the story of the 2022 midterm starts taking shape, that is the big question. Is that going to happen again? From the newsroom of The Washington Post, this is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Monday, May 16th. Today, a look at the story of this election year, as we know it right now, and how even events from over the weekend are having political implications that could affect primaries happening this week. On Saturday in Buffalo, 10 people were killed during a mass shooting at a grocery store. Most of the victims were Black. The shooting suspect allegedly wrote a document endorsing this racist ideology. So, Mariana, as we were talking about, you know, I think a lot of us are thinking about the shooting in Buffalo. Um, 
how horrific it was, and also how the shooter in this case um, seems to have been motivated by something uh, related to the the great replacement theory. Um, can you talk a little bit about that and why that stuck out to you as something that has a real connection with this political moment? Yeah, we've seen this great replacement theory kind of bubble up over the last several years, and it's really been espoused by Tucker Carlson on Fox News. And a lot of people latched onto that, reminding the public that, yes, the shooter was talking about this conspiracy theory, which essentially alleges that there is this federal government cabal that's trying to get rid of white Americans, their beliefs, their ideologies, and replace them with immigrants, non-white immigrants, to essentially be able to benefit from them. And it's something that Republicans, elected Republicans, have also been stoking. There's been a couple of members of Congress, like Matt Gates, Scott Perry, who have openly discussed this in hearings or, you know, on Twitter. Um, and then there's some that have just stoked it, like Congresswoman Elise Stefanik. She is the number three Republican in House leadership and talks about it in a more nuanced way without necessarily saying that she believes in that ideology. I should say, you know, Stefanik, these Republicans haven't had any direct uh, influence on on the shooting. The shooter's own, you know, 180 pages didn't mention anyone, any member in particular. But again, it is this rhetoric that's out there, this anti-immigrant, anti-anyone who isn't white kind of rhetoric uh, that Mm -hmm. has embedded in the Republican Party as a way of stoking some fear to motivate Republicans, especially to turn out and vote. And how are you seeing talk about the great replacement theory or other kinds of white supremacist ideas playing a role or at least uh, becoming part of the backdrop in what we're seeing in this midterm cycle so far? Well, one of the things that we've been seeing Republicans talk about, they're making immigration a campaign issue. And and privately, a lot of strategists say, you know, we poll really well when it comes to talking about immigration. A lot of people think that Republicans have a better grasp on that issue than Democrats. Over the weekend, when I was reporting on this, you did have a couple of Republican aides say, oh, you know, well, we're not mentioning race when we're talking about immigrants or undocumented immigrants or the border. But it's implied, right? Like, Mm -hmm. They may not say those words, but it is part of the conversation. It's part of the nuance. And that is how people are interpreting it when when Republicans are talking about all these different issues. So that feels like a big part of what we're kind of seeing in the air as we enter this stage of the midterms and these next few weeks when we're seeing primaries all around the country. I want you to talk me through some of the other dynamics that are at play in the midterms and and some of the high profile races where we're seeing uh, big themes come up that tell us about this political moment. This week alone, we'll be seeing a lot of primaries in consequential states. We can start in Pennsylvania. That has been a battleground. It's become a battleground in its own right. And there are a lot of independents in that state that could swing the Senate, for example. There's an open seat. It could go Democrat. It could go Republican. And there's a lot of districts, House congressional districts, that are 
completely 50-50. It's unclear which way it'll go. And that's where you have a lot of issues, like abortion could be playing a role that could motivate um, the Democratic base, which already wasn't feeling too energetic to turn out and vote. You also have, like we were talking about, immigration. I was recently in the 7th Congressional District in the Lehigh Valley, very far away from the U.S.-Mexico border. And the congresswoman there, Susan Wild, got questions about immigration and, you know, how are these undocumented immigrants coming to this part of town? What are we doing? And there's also things, of course, the biggest issue that everyone has talked about is inflation, high gas prices, not being able to get their hands on baby formula. And that's a big thing for Democrats that, you know, they're trying to respond to and trying to say, hey, we're on Capitol Hill. We're trying to make life more affordable by passing prescription drugs legislation over on the House side, a number of other things that could alleviate a lot of the pressures and worries that people are feeling. But that isn't necessarily translating to the Senate, which, again, in a state like Pennsylvania, congressional House Democrats can go out and say, this is why it matters to vote in the midterm elections, why it matters to turn out and vote Democrat in the Senate election, because then we could get more things done. And and let's talk a little bit about the the candidates here. I mean, I think... um Dr. Oz running for the Senate is a headline that I think has gotten a lot of people's attention. So talk more about the dynamics there. Pennsylvania needs a conservative who will put America first, one who can reignite our divine spark, bravely fight for freedom, and tell it like it is. That's why I'm running for Senate. I'm Dr. Oz, and I approve this message. So in the Senate Republican primary in Pennsylvania, you have Mehmet Oz, who, of course, is known as Dr. Oz, a television personality. Um, He has Trump's endorsement, and he's also friendly with Oprah from his Dr. Oz days. Yeah, so Pennsylvania, one thing when I was out there that I noticed, there are a lot of independents who really are open-minded to voting Republican or Democrat. And at least in the area that I was in, I was surprised by the amount of former Republicans I met who are now independents. And the reason that they're former Republicans is because they were super turned off by Trump. So, you know, when you talk to voters, they would bring up Oz and also David McCormick, who's this former hedge fund manager who's also in that Republican primary. And they didn't like how inorganic they are. That's how they described him, because they felt like they were both cozying up too much to Trump and the MAGA perspective. And they don't like that. But they also don't really like too many of the Democrats or haven't heard from them. And that's a different primary going on as well. You have the lieutenant governor, John Fetterman, who has actually won over a lot of Democrats. um, and, And he is leading in the polls. He announced over the weekend that he had a stroke. He's doing well. There was a video of him. He was talking. Friday, uh, I just wasn't feeling very well. So I decided, you know what, I need to get checked out. So I, I went to the hospital. I need to get checked out. Because yeah. I was right, as always. But that is something that can spook voters. But we'll see how, how that turns out. Other Democrats in the race as well are Connor Lamb. He is a congressman currently in the House. And was seen as a rising star in the party as this moderate who was able to win over more Republican areas in Pennsylvania. But he doesn't have the it factor, it seems like, for a number of voters. And they really like Mm -hmm. Fetterman's energy. 
You know, a theme that I think keeps coming up, and frankly, both in Republican and Democratic primaries, um, is Trump and how much these candidates are in opposition to Trump and alignment with Trump and how the the legacy of the Trump presidency is still in the minds of, of voters. It feels like another place where we're seeing that is in North Carolina. So can you talk about that primary and what's happening there this week and and what the 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 different tensions are that are in play there? One of the interesting dynamics that are going to be told from the primaries is how much do Trump endorsements weigh? Um, And we'll be seeing that across different states. And at the end of these midterms, we'll know really how much influence he has. And, you know, North Carolina is interesting because you have an open Senate race with Senator Richard Burr stepping down. Someone who is a Trump acolyte is Congressman Madison Cawthorn. Career politicians sell out for money. They sell out for power. And they sell out just so the media won't attack them. I have never folded in Washington, and the swamp hates me for it. Right now, rhinos are spending millions of dollars in North Carolina's defeat. He has gotten a number of negative headlines given just his own comportment over the last year that he has been a congressman from, you know, driving with a revoked license, bringing guns to TSA airport checkpoints, not once but twice in the last several months, not to mention other allegations of office misconduct and such. And he is still sticking to running. There's a lot of criticism against him. And and you've seen even more senior Republicans in North Carolina trying to make sure he doesn't get reelected. We're seeing Senator Tom Tillis in particular be very outspoken, endorsing a candidate who is challenging Cawthorn and essentially saying, you know what, this congressman, I know he's a freshman. People come here and they have to learn the ropes. But I haven't seen him make the intent to do that. And it seems like he's just trying to be a celebrity politician rather than someone who wants to serve his constituents. So Tuesday will definitely be a preview of whether he stays or he goes. Can I ask, I wonder if that's a thing that that speaks more largely to what's happening around the country with the Republican Party. Is this these these inner party tensions or Republicans looking at each other and saying, look, just because you have the endorsement of former President Trump doesn't mean that I see you as an ally. It's been interesting to see and hear Republican strategists talk about what to do with the Trump endorsement. And, you know, they'll never say this on the record, but privately they talk about how they are advising a number of candidates don't shy away from a Trump endorsement, embrace it, thank him, but also know your district enough to know how much to weigh in on you know, his rhetoric, copying his style. I should say a number of them have been advised not to try and be like Trump because voters Mm. can see when a candidate is being inauthentic or trying to be someone else. A lot of voters really do like Trump. And we've already seen in the West Virginia primaries last week, the Trump endorsed candidate in an incumbent versus incumbent race in the House ended up winning against a long-term congressman who his only fault really is voting for the bipartisan infrastructure bill last year. Trump didn't like that. The MAGA uh, groups didn't like that at all. And so he supported Alex Mooney, who is now the Republican candidate to represent that district. 
After the break, I talk to Mariana about the big question of this midterm cycle. Will Democrats lose control of the House and the Senate? We'll be right back. Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, the Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Classes in session. Find Try This from The Washington Post wherever you listen. So I want to zoom out for a second and speak a little bit more largely. Obviously, the big question that is at stake here for Democrats that I know we're going to talk about many times throughout the rest of the summer and the fall um, is will Democrats be able to maintain control of the Senate and the House? And looking around the country and looking at the map of, of the states that are in play for the Senate, at least, what are the chances of that? That's the big question. You know, a year ago when Senate strategists were looking at the map for this year, it looked worse for Republicans. They just had to defend more seats that Biden won with a considerable percentage. Democrats, again, had had won a number of those states already. But look at where we are a year later. The polling for the president is extremely low. There are a number of issues that motivate people to turn out, which is, number one, the economy. And that many people feel like the economy is very uncertain, even though Democrats have been out there and saying, you know, the unemployment rate is super low. um, This is the best economy in several years. People aren't feeling that. So Republicans very much feel like they have the upper hand in making the case that, you know, they're the party who can reestablish or, you know, try and make sure that the economy is better under their watch. They also point to, like we were talking about earlier, immigration, the border crisis. Uh, a number of voters in several polls think that Republicans have the upper hand and could do a better job on that. Same thing with crime. So all of these issues that are happening right now is likely to help Republicans. Um, I think the one thing that, you know, talking to several strategists, especially on the Republican side, they say keeps them up at night is whatever happens on the Supreme Court decision on Roe v. Wade. We've seen Mm, that that, that abortion is such an activating issue for Democrats that they might come out in bigger droves if Roe v. Wade uh, were to be overturned. Exactly. Democrats weren't necessarily feeling enthusiastic to go and turn out and vote, right? Because, you know, Democrats generally promised a lot. House Democrats were able to pass Build Back Better that died in the Senate. And it doesn't look like a number of these priorities are going to get done. But the abortion issue could really reignite, as we've seen already, protests, marches. It could reignite a lot of Democrats to just say, I'm going to turn out and vote because this is at stake. And of course, we will know the Supreme Court decision by the time voters are voting in the general election in November. What about gubernatorial races? I know that's something that you have been writing about um, and some of the more notable races uh, for for governor around the country. What are some of the seats that you're looking at and what does that tell us about where we're at going into the midterms? When I think about gubernatorial races, the first one that comes to mind is in Georgia. 
that's another race where we will know how strong Trump's influence and his endorsements are because you have the current governor, Brian Kemp, who, of course, campaigned as a staunch Republican, as a MAGA acolyte just several years ago, is actually being primaried by a former senator who has Trump's endorsement. And he has been very much trying to, you know, peddle Trump's false claim about the election, that the 2020 election, you know, was overturned, it was rigged, all of that. And especially in a state where we saw that play out, right? We saw Trump try and influence or try and tell the secretary of state, you know, is is there a way to overturn the results? Can you can you check again and again? So it's interesting to see how 2020 is still lingering in these 2022 midterms. Hmm. Say more on that. Say more about the other ways that you're seeing 2020 playing out again two years later. So it almost feels like the 2022 elections, especially when you're looking at the Senate and some governor's races, are the same as 2020. And by that, I mean what states are at play. You have Pennsylvania, you have Wisconsin, Nevada, Arizona, Georgia. A lot of those states were the ones that ended up voting for Biden. You saw Arizona switching and and, and voting for Biden. You saw Georgia switching and helping Democrats actually gain the Senate majority by sending two Democratic senators during the 2020 election. And given those results, you've seen Trump essentially say these are the states where, you know, there was voter fraud, that, you know, spinning his election falsehood about the legitimacy of the election. So it really does bring up a lot of the dynamics, a lot of the voters, a lot of the questions that we had in 20, and especially at the end of the election, all of those are going to get answers now in 2022 at the end of the midterm election. Mariana, thank you so much for all of this. Thanks so much for having me. Mariana Sotomayor is a politics reporter for The Post. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show was produced by Ariel Plotnick, mixed by Sean Carter, and edited by Renita Jablonski. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well-known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening.